We uh, give praise to the living and true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his graciousness to us this Lord's Day and allowing us to be in this place to worship together and hear his praises and sing them together as well. If you'll open your copy of the scripture to um, the book of Matthew, we're in the ninth chapter of Matthew, and if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, uh, even more than weeks, months, you understand that we're doing exposition of uh, uh, the book of Matthew, working our way through it verse by verse, and here we are again this morning. It's a privilege to to be able to read and study the Word of God. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 is where we pick up uh, this morning for our study. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Workers needed for the harvest is the title for this message. Pretty obvious title, isn't it? Recently, I read that there are 10 million job openings in the United States, but there are 5.7 million unemployed workers. Experts in these matters offer multiple reasons for the gap between available jobs and the shortage of workers. Whatever the case may be, whatever the reasons, the reality remains there is a labor shortage. Really, uh, our interest this morning is not about the national labor shortage. I just use this as an analogy of a spiritual reality. There is a labor shortage that is critical in the kingdom of God. Jesus asserted there is a worker shortage in his day. He said it was. I read it a moment ago, and I'll read it again. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The need for workers is a fact in our day as well. The church has always had a problem having enough people to do the work of the ministry extended into the world. We learn by extension from our text that the Lord intends for us to be engaged in the harvest field. Jesus himself is example of a harvest worker. He was seeking to harvest souls. You see it as we've studied the book of Matthew. You'll see it this morning. Our first head, heading illustrates this truth about our, our Lord. It, it, we'll call it Jesus is the soul worker. S-O-L-E. There's a homonym. Soul. S-O-U-L. He was the soul single worker, but he was after Souls, S-O-U-L. Verse 35, he was going through all the cities and villages. He was the only worker in the field at this point in his ministry. His disciples were there with him. They were, however, onlookers. And this verse here, verse 35, really is a summarization of Jesus' spiritual labors. Jesus was constantly busy. He was tireless in his ministry. In fact, uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 10, he was a man who went about doing good. 
Jesus was constantly doing good day in and day out. Here, this text, verse 35, reports this itineration through all the cities and villages of Capernaum. He ministered in all of those places, outside, on hillsides, in the streets, wherever people were, Jesus was ministering to them. It says the synagogues. He taught there in them, synagogues. He gathered on the Sabbath. Every Sabbath, Jesus was there in the synagogues. And the rules of the Sabbath were certain people could come up and teach, and Jesus would do that. He would teach. He would exposit the scripture as he did in Luke chapter 4. You may recall in his hometown, they handed him the scroll and he read from Isaiah chapter 61 and explained the text. Not only was teaching the synagogues, he was also proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You see it there in verse 35. Proclaiming, that word is derived from the Greek term keruso. Sometimes in this very gospel is translated preach. So it could be translated preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That word caruso from which the word proclaiming or preach is derived denotes to herald a message. To herald a message is to make a public announcements for all to hear. Jesus was heralding or preaching about the gospel. The gospel here, that word is euangelion, and it means good news. The good news of the kingdom are the rule or reign of God over the hearts and lives of those who enter into the kingdom by faith. The gospel really is the only good news we have. You have some good news that you get, maybe a circumstance in your life or, or some outcome that's wonderful for somebody, but it falls short of this, the greatest of the good news. It's the good news of the kingdom. Jesus evangelized the lost with the good news. Luke 19.10 says, he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' public ministry was focused on winning lost people, winning people who are strange from God to himself, uh, that they may enter into his kingdom. That word lost, we talk about seeking and saving the lost, it's a figurative notion of the forfeiture of every good thing, utter spiritual ruin when we talk about people being lost we are saying they have forfeited everything that's good their life is utter ruin they're estranged from god they have no hope they're without god in the world as ephesians says you remember that parable of the prodigal son in luke chapter 15 that parable graphically depicts a lost person. A person who was spiritually bankrupt. He had nothing spiritually. He was bankrupt, utterly bankrupt. And he was a rebel against Almighty God. Those are the people that Jesus came to save. Aren't you glad about that? Because that's you. That was you before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You were lost. You were bankrupt. You were utterly ruined. 
He came for you and for me. The same language of lostness applied to the nation of Israel. Jesus called them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, lost sheep of the house of Israel. The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is good news. Why? Because there is forgiveness of sin. No longer is there alienation from God. Eternal life is received. Now, of course, Jesus is preaching prior to the cross, prior to his death for sinners and his resurrection triumphantly from the grave. We have more revelation now because we're post-cross. When we proclaim the good news, we include the wonderful reality of the Jesus' death for sinners. We, we tell them that he died on a cross and he paid the penalty for the, the sins of sinners. He was their substitute. He took their place. He stood in their room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Borrowed because he was only going to need it for a little while. <laughs> Amen. He didn't go there to stay. He, he went there just for a little while. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. See, that's the good news. There's triumph over death and triumph over sin, triumph over hell, and there is now eternal life. And we get to tell people that. That's good news. We're to be about doing that. Telling people good news. The proclamation of the kingdom of, by Jesus is verified. That his message was true. You'll notice there in verse 35. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I love the reality that the text says every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus was utterly wiping out disease and sickness in Israel. When he came upon and they brought to him uh, those people who were diseased and afflicted, Jesus was able to heal them. And as he's doing so, he was verifying that he indeed was sent by the Father. He indeed was Messiah. He said as much in John chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. His works showed that he is who he said he is verification that he can be believed. Jesus worked in the harvest. The soul worker. But the question now comes, why did he do it? Let's look at that point. The next one, Jesus' motivation for the work. Verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Here we see the motivation. That, that they, they gave impetus to Jesus' tireless labors among people. He felt compassion. Uh, those are the words there. It could be translated filled with compassion. His compassion dominated him. His compassion for sinners and their plight. Literally, the word compassion, splankna, in the original, 
refers to intestines or bowels. The term is more often used in Scripture to represent emotions. You see, the Hebrews expressed attitudes and emotions in physiological symptoms. We do the same thing. We experience strong or intense emotions. They can affect our stomach. Somebody sounds like they know what I'm talking about. We can have a strong fear or some anxiety or anger. And it affects us internally. We have an anatomical reaction. We call it gut-wrenching. You hoity-toity people say it's a visceral, visceral response. So like the ancients, we associate such emotion to our intestines or our gut. Now, what's fascinating about this in this text is it says he, Jesus, felt compassion for them. He felt in his own body symptoms that deeply affected him. When he looked at the crowds, when he saw the throngs, when he saw them, it affected him deeply. Think about that. Here's the Son of God walking upon this earthly trot, and he saw these people, and he saw them for what they really were like and their need, and it deeply impacted him in his gut. Deep compassion for sinners. The text tells us why. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Their spiritual plight drew from him his compassion. I've looked at, like you, uh, the, uh, the sad situation in, in Turkey and Syria. Last I saw, the death toll topped 28,000. But when I think about that, I think more about what was really lost. See, we're all going to die. But the question is, how do we die? Do we die in Christ or outside Christ? That's the tragedy. The world doesn't understand that. We do because we know what the Bible teaches. And when Jesus looked at people, he saw them for their real status. He felt compassion. I was, as I was thinking about this, and I, I need to say it because I know it's all on your mind because you're already planning it. Many of you people are going to be glued to your TV. <laughs> There's an honest brother here. <laughs> Y'all are going to be watching these guys, some Eagles and some Kansas City Chief players. And I'm not knocking it. <laughs> but I often think about this. 
And I just bring this up because it's on everybody's mind. When you look at a crowd of people, you should think more about their spiritual condition than the jersey they have on. Because ultimately those things like a jersey, a team, and all of that, that's meaningless. Jesus, when he looked at a crowd of people, he saw them for what was really going on in them. And he had compassion for them. He saw them as distressed. That word distress literally means to flay. Mm. The new linguistic and exegetical key to the Greek New Testament defines the word as to worry, to be harassed, to be troubled by those who should have taught them. End of quote. The word also indicates that they were being inwardly devastated by their sinful and hopeless condition. It's what it means for them to be distressed. Jesus saw their sinful condition. He saw their hopelessness. He saw that they had not been taught. They had not been given what they needed regarding the most important issue in life, salvation. And he saw that. I'm going to tell you something, people. We need to see people the way Jesus sees them. Because Jesus sees them the right way. From God's perspective, an eternal perspective. Not only were they distressed, not only were they harassed, not only were they inwardly devastated by their spiritual condition, their lack, Jesus saw them as dispirited, literally to cast down to prostrate. Both of these words refer to people as sheep mishandled and lying helpless. They were spiritually mishandled by the false shepherds among them in Israel, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. These groups, scribes and Pharisees, claimed to be shepherds, but were largely responsible for the confusion and the hopelessness and the devastation of the people of Israel. They claimed to be spiritual shepherds, but they weren't. They epitomized false shepherds. Just like the false shepherds in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 34, and others who misled God's people and misused God's people. They were not helpful to God's people. They were harmful to God's people. All false shepherds are. All false teachers are. We, this country abounds with them. They claim to be bishop somebody. Reverend this. And they're getting your money. Driving a car that costs more than your house. Jesus. It's different. Matthew chapter 11. And he, he alludes to it. Matthew chapter 11. He alludes, alludes to it. These false shepherds. The familiar verse. You've heard it. Uh, read. Perhaps as a kid you memorized it, but you perhaps didn't know what it really means. 
Jesus says, this is an invitation to salvation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Let me disabuse you of a false interpretation. He's not talking about people who are tired from their job. He's talking about spiritual weariness and being heavy laden. Weary, seeking to know the way of salvation. Those who were spiritually fatigued and trying to earn salvation. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. Heavy laden suggests the external burden caused by the futile efforts of works righteousness that was laid on the people by the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what they did. They laid burdens on God's people, Israel. Heavy burdens that they could not bear. Not burdens from the word of God, but burdens from rabbinical teachings, man-made ideas, false teaching they were laying on and the people couldn't handle it. So they're being devastated with this idea. I somehow need to get right with God. And the spiritual leaders tell me I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this other thing. That's how I, I get it. I got to work my way in. False teaching cannot save. And the most assuredly cannot sanctify. Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, where he says, you will not even lift a finger. Jesus says, come to me. Verse 28, and I will give you rest. Rest from the futile efforts to earn salvation. You come by faith to him. When he says come, that's what he means. Trust me. And I will give you the rest you need. These people to whom Jesus was looking at, they were people like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep, sheep need a shepherd, don't they? Let me tell you something. We're, we're called sheep. And it ain't flattering. <laughs> sheep were gullible. Let me put it like, they're just stupid. You check out sheep and see what they're like. That's an apt analogy for us. Because spiritually, that's the way we are. Sheep need guidance, they need protection, they need care, especially with respect to salvation. Before we came to Christ, that was us. We were like sheep without a shepherd. We didn't have protection, we didn't have guidance, we didn't have the truth. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. It's a reality. A reality. First Peter chapter two. Verse twenty five. Jesus had compassion on us, didn't he? First Peter chapter two, verse twenty five. Peter saying to his now saved brethren, For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The words have returned. The idea is talking about repentance from sin. And turning to faith in Jesus Christ. 
We have a shepherd now. We have a guardian now of our souls. A shepherd who leads us. He guides us. He teaches us. He feeds us. He directs us. He cleanses us from the daily defilement that we encounter as we live in this world. We go to him and confess our sins and he cleanses us. He is a shepherd and guardian of our souls. Our souls are eternal. And our shepherd will see to it and has seen to it that we will arrive safely in our heavenly home. Our great shepherd, our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Christians are the only people who can legitimately quote and claim Psalm 23. Every, the, the worst devil out there wants to claim Psalm 23 when they're in trouble. The Lord is my shepherd. No, he is not. <laughs> Somebody's lived a reprobate life and they die and they stick Psalm 23 on their obituary. No, you can't do that legitimately. When David said the Lord is my shepherd, he could say that legitimately because the Lord was his shepherd because David was a saved man. And when the Lord is your shepherd in verse 4 of Psalm 23, he leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He leads in godliness. So we're the only ones who uh, can legitimately claim that if you're a Christian, that the Lord is your shepherd. He'll lead you. He's ended your rebellion by his grace. We confess our sins and we repent of our sins and we acknowledge as the song says earlier Lord uh, I'm prone to wonder a <laughs> wonder Jesus is our shepherd these people about whom he was seeing in verse 36 of Matthew 9 were shepherdless people Jesus the sole worker Jesus is motivation for the work back in our text here Jesus, Jesus commands prayer for workers verse 37 then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few Jesus makes his men aware of the need for laborers in the harvest he informs them of the great need the harvest outstrips the workers what is the harvest? I think we need to identify that, don't you think? We need to know what, what harvest is he talking about. We know this is a metaphor. We, we understand that. But beyond that, we know that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find the definition for this metaphor. Isaiah 27 is one place. But let me give you a couple here just to help set it. And then we'll go to the New Testament to show you what it means. In Isaiah chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, there is a, those texts tell us that Damascus, Syria... That God would judge that nation. The harvest was the metaphor for judgment. The same is true in the book of Joel in the Old Testament. The minor prophet, Joel chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Yahweh will judge the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 13 of Joel 3 says, 
Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. In fact, this is eschatological uh, judgment that's coming, ultimately. We could fast forward to the New Testament in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. We see that the same terminology is used there, and it's an indication of the coming battle of Armageddon. The harvest is judgment. Judgment. At least one aspect of it. And we've seen it before in our study of the book of Matthew. Chapter 3. John the Baptist. He alluded to it, the word harvest is not used here, but the concept is quite clear. And we'll expand us and show you uh, the truth of the matter here in a moment. Matthew chapter th- 3, verse 12. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in the words here in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do understand that John the Baptist wasn't teaching that Jesus is going to be a farmer. It's not the intent of the words. It's a metaphor. He is the one who's going to judge. He is the one who's going to winnow. He's going to separate people. Wheat saved. Chaff, the unsaved. It's a harvest of judgment, the the unquenchable fire hell. That's the reality. Jesus elaborates on this very same theme. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 13, and you can see it, Matthew chapter 13, in his uh, parabolic teachings of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 30. We'll just take a, a glancing look at this. In this passage, a couple of places. And they wonder, well, what about the wheat and the tares? Should we uh, go and separate them? And Jesus said, no. Verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Same language that uh, John the Baptist used. This is what Jesus is talking about. Obviously here, he is not talking about farming. He is using these terms to describe people. Some are going to be judged in the harvest. Others will not be. Now we run into this word, tares. We run into this word, chaff. And we see the word chaff, for example, in Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff, worthless, which the wind drives away. In this situation, tares, they, they look like wheat, but they're, they're not wheat. They just look like it. Jesus is going to have his reapers separate them. Judgment. Run down with me. You're still in chapter 13. When will this happen? Verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. 
It's the harvest of judgment is coming at the end of the age. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Let me put it to you like this. In the harvest, there's the harvest of judgment, and there's also the harvest of salvation. Some are harvested for judgment, others are harvested for salvation. That's the, what it means by the harvest. So you see, it's the ultimate issue. The harvest. So when Jesus was looking at people, he saw them for what they really were and for where they're headed. So the bottom line of human existence is, are you wheat or are you tear? When the harvest come, will you be taken in the barn to be preserved or will you be burned up in unquenchable fire? That's the bottom line of human existence. And people think it's a whole bunch of other stuff. No, no, no. When it's all said and done, this is what matters. Notice what Jesus says after he talks about the the harvest is plentiful. There's much to be harvested, but there are few harvesters or workers. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. They're not enough. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Notice something. He commands the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Who is the Lord of the harvest? Uh, in just life, uh, using this uh, analogy, the Lord of the harvest is a title for the one who hired the workers and sent them into his field on a hum- purely human level. Jesus is talking about, when he says the Lord of the harvest, harvest here, he's talking about God. It's his harvest. And he's saying, pray to the Lord to send workers into the harvest to harvest souls because judgment is coming. That's what you ought to pray. Lord, send workers into the harvest because there are multitudes and multitudes of people who are just waiting to be harvested, either for salvation or judgment. And we want to harvest them for salvation. And this prayer will be answered. The Lord, he alone will thrust people into the harvest. He will do that. Jesus didn't say pray something he intend to answer. Now, you need to understand, when you pray this prayer in obeying Jesus' command, guess what? He'll send you. Sends you with the gospel. You will be at his disposal. If you're a Christian. You are a harvester. You're to be telling people about Christ. You're to be seeking to bring them into the kingdom. That's what you ought to do. That's what we're called to do. When y'all talking about the big game, Somebody says, well, fly, eagles, fly. 
why don't you turn that conversation around and say, you know what, one day I'm going to fly away to be with Jesus. We say, what? Look for ways to bring the gospel into conversations with people. Because really when it's all said and done, who cares about ultimately who wins the Super Bowl? If you die without Christ, you won't get one whit about, did my team win? Tell people about Christ. The Lord of the harvest employs you. He'll employ his disciples. Let me conclude. A true church is a missionary church. It's involved in missions. Jesus has given us the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them, marking them out, and then teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. The world, see the world for what it really is. Lost sinners headed for the harvest of judgment unless there's a divine interdiction whereby Christ saves them out of it and harvest them for salvation. May God use us as his holy harvesters in a world that desperately needs the good news of the kingdom. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for these eternal truths, things that ultimately matter. When it's all said and done, whether the ones in the kingdom or outside the kingdom, it's all that's going to count. May we, your people, who name your name, be ever more cognizant of our role as harvesters, taking the gospel like our Lord Jesus did, sharing it with lost men and women. They may believe and come to faith. May we do it by track. May we do it by verbal communication. Enable us, help us to be faithful in the most important work we can do for people who are outside the church, outside of Christ, in the world, headed for eternal damnation, perishing people. Help us, Lord, to be harvesters, workers in your harvest. We pray for those in this room this morning who are outside of Christ, who don't know him, who are going to be harvested if they refuse to believe on him and experience eternal damnation, bring them to yourself. We pray you do it for your glory and for their good and joy and everlasting praise in King heaven before your presence. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.